You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the MBDA. This is President Heather Mason. Thank you for listening. If you're a first-time listener, be sure to check out the previous episodes. Do us a favor and leave a review. Today's guest is Bob Stommel, Director of Sales for the Huffy Corporation. With a bicycle industry background that spans an impressive 34 years, Bob has not only led and inspired sales teams, but developed bicycle sales programs for national and regional retailers. He has an impressive background of monitoring sales, marketing, product development, forecasting, customer care, and team building, which lends Bob to be a visionary on the future of bicycle retail. Speaking with Bob in preparation for this conversation, I know he is going to circle us up to see the huge potential we have right now in the industry. Before we jump into the episode, I want to give a warm mention of thanks to the newest NBDA Association member, SRAM. Along with SRAM, we welcome Zip, RockShock, Truvative, TimeSport, and Quark. The MBDA is continually working on creating moments for retailers and consumers to move forward with our industry. And Scott King, who is the co-founder of SRAM, mentioned that in joining the MBDA, that they feel strongly in supporting and creating better experiences for our retailers and their communities. A special thanks to Scott, SRAM, and the entire team. All right, without further ado, I want to jump into today's episode. I have with me today, Bob. Bob, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Heather. This is uh, quite an honor to speak with you and speak to as many dealers as out there listening. I have to admit, I did a little prep for our conversation as I do, and I Googled you. I was on your LinkedIn and such an impressive past 34 years in the bicycle industry. Yeah, that's it's 34 with bike companies and six in, in, a, in a bike shop. Oh, so, so, so 40. <laughs> I am just so leading national sales roles, directing teams, companies to scale. I'm thinking of all the people you have worked with, and you have so much to bring to the conversation. I want to rewind because I always like to start at the beginning. And I mean, how did you find yourself in the bicycle industry? Well, it really started with my grandfather, who had nothing to do with the bike industry, but my grandfather was a tinkerer. And he worked for a company at the time called Mrs. Smith Pies. And he was a pie delivery man. And he drove a truck, delivering pies to restaurants and such. But along his route, if he saw something in the trash, he'd pick it up bring it home, fix it, and give it to somebody who could use it. It could be a washing machine. To my good fortune, it was some bicycles. So we would tinker in the garage, and I got this idea when a new bike shop opened up in the Philadelphia area where I grew up that I could go get a job there when I was 14. So I moseyed into the bike shop and said, hey, listen, I know you're new, and I love bicycles, and I think I can repair and fix bicycles. What experience do you have? Well, I've been working in my grandfather's garage. Don Winninger, who was owner of Bustleton Bikes, gave me the opportunity and put the right wrenches in my hand, not channel locks or pliers, as my grandfather kind of showed me on some things. And John is my longest standing friend. He has two stores in the Philadelphia area. One is still Bustleton Bikes. The other one is named CycleFit. And, you know, he really got me started at the bike shop level. So we had various brands over the years. Raleigh being one of them. And when I was approaching my time to, you know, around graduating high school, John started asking me, what do I want to do when I get out? Do I want to go to college? Maybe we open up another bike shop, you know, and that becomes my location. And I, I 
really didn't know what I wanted to do, but we had a sales rep at the time named Howard Loman, who was from the old Raleigh TI days, who would call on us. And in the 80s, which leads to my connection with Huffy, Huffy had the name right to Raleigh in the 80s. So Howard made this transition to kind of the Raleigh side of the business. And, you know, I always thought, you know, Howard's got the greatest job in the world. He goes and sees 50 bike shops, you know, a, a month. He drives a Saab convertible. He <laughs> talks about bikes. He brings us donuts or pizza and just educates us in the bike business. What a cool job that would be. Well, you know, I asked Howard, I said, how do I become a sales rep? Well, Bob, you know, it's very difficult if somebody, you know, passes on or I said, most of them, he said, most of them stay in the jobs forever. So almost at the same time, WSI, this is going way back, Western States Imports, who did Centurion and Diamondback was looking for people. And they were in Dayton, New Jersey. And I applied there and I worked for them for about, about six months. I don't really put that on my resume because it was only six months. But they sent me out into the field, you know, after about three months and started calling on some dealers. And Howard found out about it and said, well, we can't have this. We can't have my Raleigh boy, you know, selling other stuff. So Howard actually got bumped up into management. And I, I was grateful that I got his territory and inherited a lot of uh, learning from him. One of my mentors in my life, I had, let's see, Western New York, Pennsylvania, South Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, DC, Virginia, North Carolina. And I rep for about four years. And Howard had moved on after about four years, and I got promoted to his job, regional sales manager, after just kind of coming out of the bike shop. And I did that for about another four years before being asked to move out to Seattle, where we had the factory, by uh, Chuck Wilkie, who was the president at the time. And I was only out there for about six months before Chuck Wilkie moved on. And then I was introduced to my next great mentor, which was Bill Austin. And I was there for about another three or four years before coming to Huffy. So meeting a lot of good people along the way. But I got there's also some, some people in Philadelphia who have been on some of them on your broadcasts. And I, I'd like to mention Pat Canan. Pat Canan worked at Keswick Cycle. We were about 10 miles away. We were both Raleigh viewers. We swapped bikes back and forth. Larry Peasy, who's at Alta Cycle. Larry had bike tech. I called on Larry. And when Larry was out of his bicycle retailer, uh, retail stores, um, he came to work for Raleigh under me when I was director of sales out there. So there's a lot of connection and a lot of camaraderie just from Philadelphia. A great cycling city. I go back often. I, you know, I've been in Dayton now for Dayton, Ohio for now for uh, 23 years. And it's home, but Philadelphia is still home. And you know, I try to keep in contact with everybody, even through LinkedIn or email. I miss the trade shows. I miss Interbike because you get to see everybody and you know your family, your community, your mentors. So um, but that's how I kind of got into it. And, and then '97, um, I came to Huffy. In Huffy, I've done you know several different jobs, anywhere from business development manager when I started to international sales, and now director of sales um, domestically. But I still have some international responsibility. Uh, this is such an impressive growth pattern. I mean, to listen to you talk about it, and I can see the energy in your eyes because I get to look at you. And I, oh, you must have loved what you were doing because you just continued to grow, and you must have been really good at it. How was it when you got out there those first days on that sales job? Right? Oh, like, wow. <laughs> well, you know, when you, 
Now, I'll call out another dealer who actually is not, is not around anymore, but the bike shop in Washington, D.C., the Conways, was Stanley was the father. He was from England. Neil and Simon, who were his sons, and Neil just closed the store through the pandemic after I don't know how many years now. He's older now, close to retirement. But, you know, I was green, and I went to visit this dealer, and, you know, he said, hey, you don't know me from Adam, but I want to help you. Here's the dealer's who I see as a good guys to talk to, and here's the dealers are not the good guys. And, you know, all I'm asking is for a fair shake as a dealer. And, you know, he kind of gave me the lay of the land and the territory that, you know, yeah, Howard gave me some insight when I inherited the territory from him, but that was through Howard's eyes. And I felt that I needed to start to learn through my eyes, but still keep Howard's learnings, you know, in my back pocket. And the dealers that I've met over the years, I mean, there's not a dealer that I could say that, you know, I ever had a problem with. I mean, you know, you ingratiate yourself with a dealer, and especially in this industry, the first thing they ask you when you're the new guy, where'd you come from? <laughs> if you're outside the industry, they're like, okay, this guy. But they you know, they find out I was in a bike shop from when I was 14 to I was 16, and now I'm out on the road, and you know who I know and who you're connected to, and it's like, come on in. You know, the people you meet and the things you learn in this industry are lifetime learnings and lifetime friendships. I'm so happy to hear you mention that because that is something, you know, we're continuing to try to bring our members together in these networking moments. And I'm asking retailers to reach out to other retailers, introduce themselves. Like this is how that magic happens. And I totally get what you're saying. If you're, if you come into the industry and you're not in the bicycle and you almost get shunned, you're almost, you know, you hear people, that person's not even in the industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Where's, where's this guy from? Because I've had people who I've worked for over the years who have managed me from other industries and tried to bring those influences in. And as soon as you bring your boss in and they say, well, I'm from the uh, chainsaw industry. Well, what's that have to do with my business? What can I learn from you? And some things you can, some things you can't. But there's a certain level of trust and reliability when they know where you came from. You know, I believe a lot from promoting within because that's how I grew you know, I was fortunate to have a good mentors and good people to work with and grew with in the industry. And in our earlier conversations, you know, that we had, uh, I just thought that, you know, there's life beyond the bike shop for everybody. You're not stuck in any position in this industry because there's so much potential. And especially now as we come out of the pandemic, there's just tremendous potential for the industry and people within the industry and people want to enter the industry. It does stand out to me when we spoke, I was really impressed. You were just like, there is tremendous opportunity now. And you said it without even affliction of like not, you were so committed to that. And I was like, okay, we need to chat. So I took some notes from that conversation and I want to just dive into some areas that you were talking about the potential that is right in front of us now. Let's talk about the cycling boom and the new consumers who have found our sport. I think you would agree that that's fantastic, right? It's only brought good things. Absolutely. From almost the time the CDC locked everything kind of down and people were looking for things to do and kids were out of school, it was an immediate surge in looking for bikes, looking for scooters, looking for anything I could do independently. And that was just for kids. And all of a sudden, parents who, you know, I have a 14 and 15-year-old, and one of my, my 14-year-old spends most of his time using his thumbs in the house in front of the screen. And all of a sudden, 
let's go out for a bike ride, you know, because he was cooped up in the house. So all of a sudden, I got to engage with my youngest son on a level that I didn't have before. The bicycle brought us together. My older son and I go bike riding every now and then, but my young son wanted to get involved. And my wife's like, well, the three of you can't go out without taking me. So all of a sudden, we went from these neighborhood rides to these destination rides. We put the bikes on the bike rack and go somewhere. And then we saw other people doing it. And, you know, when you see other people doing it, you know, I could do that too. And all of a sudden, people just started running for, for bicycles wherever they could because, you know, not only could they engage with their families, but I can't get to the gym, but I can ride a bike. I don't want to commute on public transportation, but I can ride a bike. And it just evolved and exploded. And the industry just wasn't really ready for it. None of us were. Service, pulling stuff out of the back and, and you fix this. And, you know, I've listened to your podcast. I mean, it's nothing new, I'm really telling you, but the evolution and awareness that has been built, all of a sudden that the consumer sees that there's a bike lane over there, it's always been there, they just never noticed it before, or a bike path, it's incredible. I know. And, you know, we do bring up topics often, you know, the same thing. And in this aspect, I'd like to just ask you, you know, advice for retailers. Now we have this new tempo, a new recognition for bike lanes, as you're saying, a new recognition for where bikes can take us and families. Any advice for retailers to, you know, react to this, to best position themselves for these new consumers? Yeah, I would say it's embracing everybody. And I'm going to say this because I've been on both sides. I've been on the IBD side and I'm on the math side. And we're one industry. We're looked at by the consumer as one industry. And not everybody within our industry looks at us that way. I mean, you know, people can afford certain levels of bikes and shouldn't feel guilty for buying a bike or having a bike and bringing it to a bike shop and feeling, am I being accepted here? Because some bike shops do and some bike shops don't. And to me, we should be embracing all cyclists because a lot of the People who were not enthusiasts and uneducated have wandered now into bike shops and they're getting excited, you know, and they're getting educated. So I think engagement and education with our consumers at every level, in the store, online, we just need to embrace them. And you also need to be profitable on how you do it. We have a profession that we have a skill and not to give it away. You know, some people can change tubes, other people can't change tubes. But if we know how to change tubes and somebody has a problem, regardless of what the issue is, we should be embracing them and accepting them as a customer and gaining their uh, trust. That would be one of the main things is embracing the customers and service. You know, service is number one. Service is outpacing sometimes the new bike sales because bikes are coming out of the woodwork. And you know, I was talking to John at the bike shop in Philadelphia and 40, 50 repairs a day just to try to keep up. And everybody wants it tomorrow because they want to go riding. So I think service is another big key to this. We've been definitely focused on service and profitability and making sure that we don't undervalue what we're offering and our skills. I'd like to talk about, you know, we're seeing, like you said, lots of bikes just coming out of the woodwork to be repaired. And speaking of bicycles, maybe there's some categories that are maybe standing out, you know, at your level, maybe that you could suggest to retailers to keep an eye on what categories, what models that we might see growing. Yeah, I mean, the, the consumer that seems to be coming out now in general has been a more of a recreational rider. So comfort, hybrid, if you look at the MPD numbers on electric, 
It's also following that trend. So an electric is a hot button right now everywhere, not just in the bike industry, but also the auto industry. And that technology leap, I associate some things in the bike industry with the auto industry. Now you go back and look at cars 10 years ago that didn't have the convenience, comfort. How many cup holders does the car have? What electronics does it have? Can I interconnect? Bicycles are going through that same transformation in the e-bike side of the market. And it's ease of use, extending the ride, and opening ridership up for people of all abilities. You know, you could be young, you could be old, you could be just looking for that extra 10 miles push to get back home after a long ride. E-bikes are on that list too. I would also say, even though it's more kind of performance oriented, but gravel bikes, adventure bikes, that's part of the comfort category because you're doing this for adventure and recreation. It's not necessarily for speed like a road bike. So that category too seems to be emerging in different areas. You know, I know the Midwest has been really big for it, but people in the coastal, you know, east and west coast are starting to to get it now. And that kind of emerged from, you know, consumers taking old road bikes and converting them to this more comfortable bike, but they didn't have the geometry that the gravel bike lends you for that longer ride. You know, it's not as, as harsh a geometry as a road bike. So those would be the categories that I would think. For kids, it's been BMX. You know, we have, I think, the BMX quarterfinals come up tomorrow and go through the next couple of days. And, you know, I was never a BMXer when I was a kid, but I'm going to be watching. And my, I got my kids interested in watching. They're not really BMXers, but they're excited to see something different. I mean, just having wheels, whether they be skateboards or bicycles in the Olympics is really something. I mean, you know, I lived through the time that, you know, Raleigh built the funny bikes for the 84 games. It was Raleigh-Huppy combination. And then we had the Levi's-Raleigh team. And I was fortunate to make friends with Nelson Vales. And Nelson and I traveled together. We rode together at Trexler Town in Pennsylvania. And bringing him into, into stores, I mean, it was like, wow, Nelson Vales is coming to my store. But it's it, such a spark for the industry. Same thing happened during the tour with Lance Armstrong. We had these industry icons and Greg Lamont who came up and you aspired to be these people. So I'm excited about the future in that way too, that there's a whole new generation that's interested and is going to be coming up through the industry and will create industry icons that uh, will inspire more people to ride. I love that you brought up Nelson. He's absolutely fantastic. And that my brain is unraveling as you're, you know, you mentioned the word adventure bike. And I'm thinking that the industry has really pegged like the gravel bike over the past couple of years outfitted with bags as the adventure bike. Mm-hmm. And that was for the cyclist of the time, which would yep. have been the roadie or the mountain biker, you know, the person who had already been a cyclist. But now we have all these new cyclists and maybe the new adventure bike is the comfort bike or the hybrid bike with bags on it. And why aren't we marketing that? Because we want people to be fueled, right? So- yep. I'm just unraveled. I noticed, though, Bob, I'm going to call you out. You didn't mention road bikes. So what are your thoughts about road bikes? Same thing there. I mean, road bikes to me have always been the technology leader within the industry. It's where new materials are tested, new derailers, new new everything is always tested. And it trickles down because it's kind of the show car of our industry. And again, people are inspired by it. They want to go fast. I got a quick, interesting story that my son had a mountain bike my oldest son. And he says, you know, dad, 
this is harder to pedal. I, I don't go as fast. So, you know, he saw some of the old road bikes that I had in the garage and, you know, we got him a road bike that fit him. And I went back and researched some, some old bikes and I, I picked him out an old Raleigh Technium from 1987 that I was totally familiar with. And I said, you know, daddy had this bike when he worked for Raleigh and we got on the bike and fixed it up, you know, tuned it up. And we were in the garage and a group of his friends were out there and they said, well, what kind of bike is that? Because they never saw anything with a drop bar. They never saw anything in that really diamond frame. And I said, well, hey, guys, why don't you ride Matthew's old bike and Matthew's new road bike? Tell me which one you like best. Well, the three or four kids that were there, they all came back. We like that road bike. It goes fast. If you think about retail today, road bike still makes up a small portion because everything on the floor is mountain or comfort. And I'm thinking, God, if we were to introduce a road bike again, Maybe there's something there because kids want to go fast. They want to aspire to the greatest athletes that are out there. So that's what I'm also hoping for is that an athlete will come out and people will be inspired as they were through the 90s and 2000s to jump on road bikes because we were winning races. Again, I relate this kind of to car companies. When car companies are in NASCAR and they're winning races, all of a sudden people, even though they're not a NASCAR person, they take interest in it. Yeah, it definitely when we have that spark, like you're saying, and I think like you refer to the Tokyo Games, I could see BMX definitely getting a call out now. Inventory is really hard to come by and retailers are having a hard time, as you know. I've been trying to give some resources on alternative inventory sources. Do you have any thoughts for retailers in this area? Well, you know, the retail, I still, I still get into a, a bunch of IBDs just to get a, a pulse of what's going on on that side of the market. But a lot of them have realized that there's money in used bikes. There's money in trade-ins. And companies like the Pros Closet and people like that wouldn't be in business if there wasn't money in there. And they're finding that when they can't get the entry-level bike and not to lose the customer, people are going out. I've heard dealers going out on places like Craigslist, seeing what's out there and buying a, you know, I'm not going to say a mass bike, but a good resellable bike that they can get you know, $300 retail for that they're buying for 100 and they're putting a little bit of money into it and they're making a nice turn. They're not losing a customer. That's been pretty big with a lot of dealers. And some dealers have survived off of that while not being able to get bicycles. The bicycle situation is still not great, but it is getting better. You know, we are, I think, as an industry, still kind of outpacing last year, which was a record year. And finding ways, but I think we need to start to learn who's buying what and why. And we did some studies on that because, you know, I'm buying that bike. I came in for $300 and there was a bike for 500 and I really wanted a mountain bike, but I'm selling for the comfort bike. So what did you come in and buy? And I think that's the biggest challenge for dealers coming up is how do I forecast my business going forward? Because everything's selling. And you know, I've been advising, you know, even the bike shop I used to work for to look at his sales over the next 90 days because things have tapered off a little bit and start to look at what I brought in and what is sold. So if I had 100 mountain bikes, 100 comfort bikes, 100 hybrids and some kids bikes, start to measure your point of sale and see what's going so you can reforecast, especially for your vendors, reforecast the business so they know what to be ordering with the factories because they're kind of blind to it too, to a certain extent. So right now, I think is the time to start managing the business for the future because of the long lead time. You got to look at it right now in this next 
three to six months to really determine the best course of action for spring of next year, because that's the first availability in a lot of cases is spring of next year for some models. Yeah, I've been hearing May as well, but we've been talking to retailers about really using your data. And like you said, figuring out what's selling, reanalyzing the orders that you have with your vendors, and then adjusting as necessary. A great tip there to look at the used bike market. We just did a podcast with Larry Black, who gave us some fantastic, I mean, he has a huge collection of used bikes, and he's been doing great with them. Outside of the bicycle market, anything in service fitting, any tips for retailers in those areas that you could offer? As I said, service would be number one. You know, I know some retailers are more sophisticated than others, but if you have any data on your customers of the past 12 months, email addresses, addresses, reach out to them because they bought a bike 12 months ago or six months ago. Send them something in the mail or an email for service, for sell off on accessories. Bring them back in because, you know, some of these consumers, I could tell you from, again, from the bike shop in Philadelphia, They've come three states to buy a bike from him. They're not ever coming back. Mm-hmm. So that was a one-time deal. But the people who are within maybe 100 miles radius of you, they might want to come in to upgrade. You know, I got the bike that you had, but I really want the bike that I want now. Or I want this new accessory or I need a tune-up. And I think that that in itself, service, and it's been a challenge for most people because we're fixing so many bikes as it is, is going to be a way to maintain and you know your relationships with the customers and improve word of mouth. They had a good experience there. That would be one of them. But you know, also accessories and not to lose focus on the women's market is still strong. A lot of women, a lot of moms came out. You know, a lot of moms are riding now because they're riding with their kids. And mom makes the decisions in the family, not dad. Mom takes the kids out to the stores, you know, for soccer cleats and things like that. They're making those decisions and you know, a lot of bike shops have done a lot of good things over the past few years to direct women's sales, but I think it's even more of an issue now because you not only have the women enthusiasts who really came out and made a presence, but you also have non-enthusiasts, just the mom. I want to just ride around the block. I want to go to Starbucks, and I want a bike with a basket on it that looks cute. You know, not really an enthusiast. So that's another area that I think that the bike dealers and all retailers can really tap into further. And also that electric bike market. I mean, it's the fastest growing market or part of our market of all the different categories. And it's been that even before the pandemic. So we've been rolling into this with some good things looming, like the Senate bill that hopefully will happen. It'll just get more people involved. I was just reading, and I don't know if it's fact, but California just put together a plan, or maybe it was just Los Angeles, for the tax incentive that kind of went through already. I think that's kind of breaking news. I don't know all the details, but I was kind of hitting the headline on that. But that's kind of stuff's coming. And as, as people think automobiles, bicycles are following right into that same path. In fact, we're probably leading that because our technology is not ahead of where they are, but it's, it's more understandable and it's more usable and it's more affordable. It's so exciting thinking about all these new categories. And you mentioned the women's category. And yeah, I'm thinking of like kids who haven't been in school. So they've been missing out on school sports. I know my kids have been riding with other friends. And, you know, we've got really all these new consumers coming into our industry. And I love your feedback about reaching out. If you have your email address of your customers to reach out because chances are, you know, they didn't come into your shop how it normally is because you were adjusted your hours or your operations. 
And mm-hmm. it's a great time to invite them back for maybe accessories that, you know, your staff couldn't walk them through that they might need to consider or yeah. give them time, right? Yeah, a lot of stores you weren't allowed in. You had to deal from the sidewalk. Now, welcome them into your store. Let them look around and, you know, give them a reason to come in. I just think that's another just way to perpetuate the business forward, bringing in the new customer again, you know, luring them back in. Because, you know, most people, and, you know, we were seeing the drop off now a little bit. Once the CDC guidelines were lifted, now that discretionary dollar is going maybe somewhere else. I'm going on vacation. I'm going to the movies. I'm going out to dinner. Well, I want that dollar back. I want to keep that dollar. So I want to bring my customer back in who I who I got and give them a reason to come back in and continue to spend their money in our category. Maybe not go back to the gym. Got a bike here. Better benefit, fresh air. You know, ride with people you can talk to and have an experience with rather than somebody in a gym who you're just not, you know, even looking at. You know, you're looking at a screen or something like that. Here I can have an experience with my neighbor or my friend or my family. I'm it's so excited to keep those people in our, you know, out of the gyms and in with us. And talking about the face value and those experiences together, I want to jump into another segment of the conversation that I wanted to connect with you on because I know you're so skilled in this. And you know, many retailers have chatted to me about their reps, their sales reps visiting over the past year. And some say they miss the reps coming in, you know, and others have just been way too busy to think about it. Yeah. Others questioning the value add of reps. I know that you've been managing and motivating a team for or several teams over the course of your year. Thoughts on this? Any advice to retailers that want to maybe use their rep relationship to the best, get the most education and value. Any advice you'd give us here? Yeah, on a couple of different levels. I'm very partial about reps because that's where I started. Reps are an extraordinary value to not only the company that they work for, but also to the retailers in which they see. Because, you know, in my case, I would see 50 dealers in a month. And I'd see dealers that I consider doing it right and considered doing it wrong, but I also saw what the trends were. I saw that this guy over here was selling more road bikes, and you're not selling so many road bikes, and you're in the mountain bikes. And you might not have the right mix on the floor because they're seeing from within their four walls. They don't get to walk into the competitor store and see what's going on, but I do. And I'm not giving any trade secrets out between retailers. I'm just saying that I see a trend here, whether it's a bicycle, whether it's an accessory, whether it's clothing, whether it's the way you have your store laid out, your service department laid out, sometimes even for security reasons. I know there's been a lot of smash and grabs. I don't want all those $4,000 bikes in my window anymore because this guy got robbed. So you want to move them backward. You know, you don't really have protection in your front windows against this. So just those tips of business trends that the rep can give, that's one thing. But then education. I mean, you know, I talked about Howard Lohman, the rep who used to call on, on us at the, at the bike shop. He used to walk in the back and talk to us. Didn't just talk to the owner. He was in the back. Hey, how my bike's going together? Is there any issues? Is there this or that? And if they had an issue or a question, he would answer it. And that's how I started to engage with Howard. And then even though there's computers out there, you know, reps could still be going in the back room and looking at a want list. There's still such thing as one list and not everybody's computers are up to date. You can go and see a shelf that's empty or do a, help do a bike inventory and, you know, just look at the bike inventory. Where are you at today? And 
compared to where your sales are. Maybe you need to rebalance your buy. So that's an important thing. And, you know, reps should always walk in with the newest accessory in their hand. What's new? What's my purpose for coming into this store? The easiest way not to get an order as a rep or not to engage is to call them on the phone or email them. You know, you can't deliver a look in the eye and a handshake over an email or a phone call. So the engagement there of what you can learn from a rep because of all that they see and they work for the company is to me paramount. They can be the one that lets you know when something comes into stock. You know, are you going to take their phone call? And it works both ways. A dealer needs to be able to pick up the phone. I'm not Bob's calling again. You know, I would stay in bike shops as a rep until they would throw me out. And most times they'd have to give me an order to get me out of the store. So it was that kind of, I wasn't that pushy, but you know, you had those relationships where you showed up consistently as a rep so that you'd be there when the retailer would want to see you or have time to see you and uh, maximize the time because the time is precious. But I also roll that back to the vendor itself, the bike company. It's their responsibility as it was my responsibility to make sure the people I have calling on my retailers are well-educated in my product and the needs of the retailer. To me, my company, any company I've worked for, is only as strong as the retailers which I associate with. Because if they're not selling it, I'm not selling it. So that connectivity there is very important. And, you know, I would say to, to bike dealers, though, those people who are educating you and keeping you in the know and servicing you, are really the ones you should support because it's your business. Nobody can really tell you what to sell in their store. And you sell what you want to sell. You're an independent bicycle dealer. Sometimes even the best brands don't have the best service. And you default to brands that do give you the best service or the most likable rep or the rep that's going to come out and educate your mechanics on something or work a weekend in the sale or help organize a ride. I think reps are invaluable. And yeah, we can go and look at people's inventory now on the weekend and place our own order on our own, but everybody in the store is a salesperson. So it's not always the owner of the shop who's out front, it's somebody in the back and you don't want your weakest link on the floor or on the, uh, in the service department who's a great mechanic, but not a good salesperson. You want them to be able to get out on the floor when there's a crowd in the store and everybody able to sell as well as service. And it's 360 degrees for me. You have to know what you're building and what you're selling and how it relates to the customer. And only a rep can really help communicate that. Ask your reps. Tell them you need to know this information because a lot of them have it. It's just a matter of engaging them. And that's what makes, to me, a good rep. I've competed against some, some awesome reps over the time, including Mr. Canan, and had challenging retailers like Mr. Peasy. And you find a way and you build a relationship and there, there's a trust there. And the dealers have to ask for that. Because uh, right now, you know, the education, a lot of dealers travel to trade shows when they can to get educated. But you got an educator who comes into your store every month, you know, who sees everything and hears everything and knows what the delays are and knows what the new components are. It's right there for you to grab. Just ask. And they should be able to tell you. Bicycle Retail Radio is supported by our NBDA members. All our member benefits can be found at NBDA.com. Join the NBDA today. I've got goosebumps because I worked for a rep for several years and my retailers, I still keep in contact with sort of, you know, as you're saying, our network is so tight. And yet it was about 
working with them, you know, not just selling them products, but truly working with them to connect with their community, their staff, you know, put on events, and it makes a big difference. And I truly agree with what you're saying. Retailers need not to be afraid to ask their rep for these trends. They need not to be afraid to ask their rep to help them with whatever regard they need. And that education point is so spot on. So I hope that people who are listening, you know, look at their rep as a tool that could be super valuable. Just got to get that relationship moving forward. And sometimes you have to ask for it, right? (laughs) I mean, I I applaud the companies that you've had on that are starting technical training courses for people because it's a profession that, you know, you can learn how to be a plumber, you know, you can learn how to be a carpenter, but a bicycle repair person today is so invaluable. I mean, we're pushing 18, 20 million bikes into the marketplace. They're all going to need repair at some point. And it astounded me when I look in the back of the retailer and I see 50 jobs for technicians. Never saw that. Willing to relocate people. I mean, that's how important this is. And to me, you know, how do you get these people? You know, how do you get some of them are right in front of you as your customers? Some of your best customers. I think they're a little bit on their own or enthusiast or in their late teens or a retired person. That extra person, even if they're not the mechanic you want, is a voice on the floor that understands the product that's been in your store a million times that you build a relationship with. We had at Bustleton Bikes. We hired a few seniors just to talk to people on the floor. And they weren't high-pressure salespeople. You know, hey, what are you looking for today? What kind of riding are you going to be doing? And they directed them into that good, better, best scenario and let them figure out the level of bike, not the type of bike, but am I going to spend $300, $500, or $1,000 at the time? And they were good salespeople. And it took a little bit of pressure off of the mechanic leaving the back of the store to go up front because you have this other person working there. But, you know, I think there's a lot of the youth is engaging in this, as I did when I was a kid, and as Pat Canam did as a kid. You can reel these people into the bike shop and uh, make them a part of the family of that bike shop because they're, they already are a part of your family because they're, they're sometimes your best customers. You know, hey, did you ever consider working in the bike shop? No, I don't have a job. Well, that's cool. I'll give you a little quick little story. When I did go to the bike shop and I didn't really know much about what I was doing, John, the owner of the bike shop, said, you know, well, I'm just starting out in this business myself and I really can't. In a nice way, he's telling me he couldn't afford to pay me. And I left the bike shop and I was kind of bummed. Because I've got my bike repaired there too. And it was a goal for me to work at the bike shop for whatever reason. And I got some gumption up and I walked back in and I said, how about I work for you for nothing for six months and learn all I can. And after six months, if I work out, then you'll pay me. Well, then I was with John for six years. And I went home all excited to my dad and told him I got a job. And he said, well, how much are you getting paid? Well, nothing, dad. My dad and I went back to the bike shop and we all talked it out. And it was a funny incident. And John and I still laugh about it today. But it was the best investment of time that I ever made in my life because I wanted to be in the bike business so bad. I was willing to do it for free. Yeah. And look where you are, right? Yeah. This was my next topic was the opportunities now that exist in this job market. And so I'm, I'm really happy that you went here with it. And I just had a conversation yesterday with QBP about bringing new service techs in. And it's about defining the roles. Like you could bring someone in who's not a tech, you know, it would be considered more of a basic role. As long as you could define that role, as you're saying, you can put someone into a specific role and that could really help alleviate pressure and just give you that extra little push you need, right? Yeah. 
Okay, let's think about sales training. This is something I'm hearing from retailers that they really could use some resource and guidance from the MBDA. So we're working on some things there, but, and this is broad, so I'm going to hit you with a big one. Any single sales training tip you could lend to retailers from all your years? I know that's kind of silly to boil it down to one, but maybe. Yeah, I think the best way is how I was taught and I kind of brought my method of pitching a bike Huffy, because we didn't pitch so much components in spec as we did in the bike shop. So we call it romancing the bike. And we kind of got this from building a bike. You know, when I build a bike, I build it from front to back. That's all I was taught. So everything from what I adjust from the front of the bike to the back of the bike and even being tight is done completely. And I pitch a bike exactly the same way. So I talk about, you know, start at the front wheel and talk about the brake system or the frame work my way all the way back to the rear derailleur. That's one thing. But confronting the consumer now is another thing because they don't really have an idea of what they're going to spend or what they want to spend or what they really need. So I was always taught to ask them what type of riding do they intend to do. And they'll start to talk about it. I, I ride with my wife. What kind of bike does she have? Or I ride with my husband. What kind of bike does he have? And you know, kind of guide them into the category, if you will. And then, you know, I talked about good, better, best. I would always pull out three bikes. And hypothetically, this bike is a 21-speed with front suspension. This is a 21-speed with front suspension but aluminum. And this is a 21-speed dual suspension bike. And give them the nuances between the three. Get them on the bike. Let them sit on the bike. And talk them through. And I never mentioned price. The price tags are a lot of the stores right on the bike. So they get to see what it is without the intimidation of talking about cost so much. And if they say, well, what else do you have? Then you guide them into that category. But once you have them interested and once you have them fitted the proper way and then explaining why you're fitting the proper way so they get the, the proper extension uh, leg and, and, and an upper torso, upper torso, then, you know, we would wheel them through the accessory area, you know, start to accessorize, you know, whether it be a water bottle, a cycle computer, Whatever. I mean, if the bike didn't have pedals, then you would get into all another scenario with pedals and shoes and everything else. To the point where, how are you going to transport this bike home? I was just going to throw up my trunk. We know we have car racks right over here. And I see you have an SUV with a trailer hitch on the back of it. So, which we have a receiver that, you know, goes right into that. So, you know, several different ways. I mean, it's funny, and I'll refer to the owner of the bike shop again. We had some of the best brands at the time. So it's a store. We had Raleigh and Trek and Viscount at the time, and San Tropez was kind of our opening price point. When he trained us, he said, you know, we have nothing in our store that the customer wouldn't want. We have everything right here. So, you know, I don't want to see you, the customer leave the store until you turn them upside down and shake the money out of them because they shouldn't be leaving here. You know, we have everything. So, and we learned that you're out the sales. I mean, back then, you know, you throw in a water bottle or something, some people still do. But, you know, you complete the sale. I mean, it's much harder to, to get them into the store. It's very easy to keep them in the store once they're there. So training your people like that is one thing. I'd also put bounties on certain bikes. I mean, if we wanted to move a bike, I mean, and the guy's making, you know, X amount of dollars per hour, we'd say, okay, every time you sell one of those, you get five bucks, whatever. And we sometimes run a little contest. And that incentivizes the employees a whole lot, too, because there's more than just the hourly wage. They remain engaged. Also, as a sales rep, to group them in. And once the line hits the store, 
it's very important for the sales rep to come in or the, for the dealer to ask the sales rep to come in, take my guys through the line because they didn't get to go to the show or the dealer camp or whatever it was. Not everybody gets to go. Can you just educate my guys and walk them through the features and benefits? Tremendous because they get the search. Hey, you know, my Trek rep was just in last week and he told us all about these bikes and the guy's pumped up. He's not looking at any other bike in the store. He's talking about what he learned because he learned from the other guy. So I think it's a big thing. Again, it's education and it's a service to the dealer, to the person on the floor, and especially the customer. You're educated. They came in for an education. They don't get that walking into some stores where there's no salesperson. They got to figure it out for their own. They're looking at every price tag and every color. They come into a bike shop for a reason to get educated. Retailers go to the trade shows for a reason to get educated. Education and service to me is, is paramount again in selling bicycles, selling anything. I mean, when the new cycle computer comes out, how do you turn this on? Well, I don't know. Let me get the that. They should just know, you know, and the rep should do that. When you're selling a new computer in, teach them how to use it. There's nothing more frustrating, I think, even with an Apple iPhone as you get it, and you got to intuitively figure it out for yourself. How do you use this thing? You look it up on YouTube how to do it. You can cut to the chase just through education. There are so many fantastic points in there to pick apart, but I worked for a very intelligent man who I remember in a staff meeting said, you do not want your customer to get home with their... road bike and not know how to put air in the tires because you didn't tell them about a Presta valve versus a Schrader valve, right? Like simple, right? But qualify the customer, figure out where they're going to be using the bike, who they're going to be riding with, explain the feature and benefits and be the source of knowledge. And then like you said, take them over and accessorize them. We used to have a a new riders checklist right in the store. And we used to have our accessory wallet set up so you could just walk the person right down and explain everything. And we did the same thing. We incentivized 50 cents a lock, 50 cents a pump, and it adds up for your employees and they get excited about it. (laughs) Very excited. I remember the days selling bell helmets when Bell wasn't a kind of a direct distributor. And I called on an account called Bike Line in Philadelphia. It had like 20 some stores. I was the Bell sales rep of the year for I don't know how many years in a row because he would go to the bike show back when they were giving you a dollar for every helmet you pre-book. So it shows how incentives work. He would buy all the helmets he could or book all the helmets. Of course, he had to take them. And there was no bigger thrill than at the bike show and being handed money back in the days of Vegas. And, you know, You'd have $5,000, $10,000 in cash because he booked all these helmets. It's the same thing for your employees in the store. If they get on this sick to sell a certain helmet, they're going to push that helmet or that accessory every single time. And, you know, I don't like to use it for service because I don't want people to feel that you're incentivizing for service. But you point out what needs to be serviced and nothing more. But accessories, everybody can use accessories. You can't oversell accessories. You can't oversell service because it's intimidating sometimes because we want to get paid and they come in with a $150 bike and find out it's a $200 tune-up. People take a step back. But even in that situation, you can pivot and say, you know what? I understand you don't want to spend $200, but I got this really nice used bike that I just got in. It's $250 or $300 and boom. Okay, like I got something ready-made. And you know what? The bike you're looking to get tuned up, I can give you 75 bucks for it, you know, and it's, it just perpetuates or something like that. So, you know, again, it's part of selling. It's finding the way to yes all the time and taking care of customers. 
I love that. It's a yes all the time. It's a true thing. We don't want to use that word no, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Bob, we also, in our conversation, we touched upon local communities, infrastructure. How are you seeing that the boom will affect these areas? I see it very positively, and I can speak from experience. When I moved to the city of Springboro, which is a suburb of Dayton, the city council was advertising for committee volunteers for a bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure project. And I signed up for it. And what our committee did was lay out the plans for the community. And our goal was to be recognized as a bicycle-friendly community. And I was on that. I chaired that committee. I was on that committee for nine years. We're now a bronze community and have continued to grow. But every community today, city or small community, has a council or has members beside these pedestrian bikeways to map out their city. They're just looking for community involvement. And no better involvement than they can get is from people from in the, in the bike industry who ride these streets. Uh, they might not know what the regulations for the states are to how wide the path needs to be or things like that, but cities are embracing this as an activity to make their city shine. I mean, the city of Springboro looks at it now itself as a destination to come ride our city and come meet our businesses within our city. And we've now interconnected with two other cities, bike paths and bikeways. But those other cities have people from bike shops who get involved and they invite the bike shops in to give clinics and to advertise, hey, I'm the bike shop. I'm not, we, you know, we don't have a bike shop actually in the city limits of Springboro, but right over in Miamisburg, we do. People from Whitman's Bike Shop come over to the city of Springboro and the city advertises, hey, we're going to have so-and-so, I think it's Sandy from Whitman Cycle, and she's going to come over and she's going to educate you on bicycle safety and how to tune up your bike on the road. We have an issue. Just basic things. And also, she invites them to her bike shop for major tune-ups or accessories why you need certain accessories, things like that. So the interaction, I mean, it's, again, reaching out to your community leaders. Every community I know has some kind of bicycle infrastructure plan, whether it be a large city that already has one or the smaller communities like I live in. In the Miami Valley here in Dayton, we have the largest bicycle network of any in the nation with over 300 miles of bike connectivity. It's just amazing on and off-road. I mean, you learn a lot by being part of the community, too. And not everybody's from the bicycle industry who's in this, but they care about the community. They ride bikes. And, you know, it makes me proud when I'm riding bikes or driving in my car, you know, and I see people using the bike lanes now. It's like, this is fantastic. And, you know, when a car veers in where they don't belong, I get aggravated as a cyclist because that's a protected area for our cyclists. And there's a reason there's a line in the road for this is the cars, this is the cyclists. And it just opens up the community more to recreation. And now that we're seeing a lot more people, like I said, from the pandemic engaging, they're realizing there's a bike lane there. It's not just, you know, the shoulder of the road that's parked. It's actually a bike lane. You know, I want to use it. I want to feel safe. I don't want to have to use the car to go get a cup of coffee because I want to see somebody on my bike. I want to ride with my friend. And, so I think engagement like that is very important for maybe you designate somebody in the bike shop to be your advocate. People for bikes, huge. I mean, I look at their website weekly just for updates of what's going on and 
can you get involved and how you can get involved. I know that Pat Canan has the same passion. I know that Larry Peasy with e-bikes has had the same passion for years of that connectivity and where to use it. And it's just a matter of, you know, it's a volunteer thing, but it's very, very gratifying to invest in your community that way. And you get some notoriety because of your bike shop. Those consumers will come in because they know you're part of that movement. Yeah, I've had a couple of retailers say that they've reached out to their local chamber of commerce. And in order to kind of stimulate this idea of making the community more of a bicycle destination friendly spot, and because of the bicycle boom and the recognition that the industry has gotten, that chambers are open to this and working with the retailers to do just this. So I think that's fantastic advice. And I urge our retailers, People for Bikes is a great suggestion in reaching out to the local chamber uh, just to get more involved in how you can make your community more of a you know, official on paper, if you would, official cycling destination. And there's a lot to be done there for sure. We even have two micro brews that are in our small town and um, they sponsor weekly rides that start at the brewery, go out. Some of them are 10 miles, some of them are 20, some of them are 50. And then the end at the brewery with discounts, you know, pull off, have a beer, have something to eat. And that was part of an outreach project with a couple of bike shops. In doing that and collaborating, they'll run the group to give the discounts to my group when they come in or out. And it's, it's been a good interaction, you know, for some of the community businesses. There's even been, because of limited parking in some of the small towns, they working through the chamber, they have bike to your, your retailer Saturday, where you get a discount for shopping in a little strip of street at antique stores or wherever it might be, just because you rode your bike and, you know, that was another thing that we worked with the city council on was we needed an investment from the city for bike racks. So, you know, and the city got all charged up for it because they could logo the bike rack and, you know, city of Springboro and nice loop rack. And people started coming to some of these meetings and saying, well, we need one over at the Kroger and we need another one at the library because it's always full. And all of a sudden the city invested in this all on their own. As part of the infrastructure because their constituents were asking for it. And it was just a matter of engaging and having these meetings. It's, it's been incredible. We have quite a bike network that I'm, I'm quite proud that I was part of. And when I leave this town, it'll be, it'll be kind of a legacy. Or, or as my kids say, there's dad's bike lanes. You know, not mine, but they know I was involved. Yeah, it's definitely feel-good work. I don't know about why bikes and beer go together so well. They, they do. <laughs> used to be pasta. <laughs> I just have a couple more questions. You know, you've worked with so many retailers over the years. Is there anything that stands out to you that you can do that retailers could do to add to the profitability of a shop? Yes. And, and some of that was talked about, I think, in one of the other podcasts, but training good technicians. I mean, getting the job done in the right amount of time to move on to the next project is a definite. So good training of your technicians is one. Good salesmanship, salespersonship, should I say, is another because think about buying online. It's the, it's the least amount of clicks to the checkout. Well, I want to train salespeople to the least amount of steps to the register. So I want to give them the proper information, give them the proper time. But on a busy Saturday, I don't want somebody walking out. So I want to be able to best evaluate who I'm dealing with and get to yes as quickly as, as possible. Again, Training is, is one thing. And then, you know, learning over the years, the big savings is owning your own property. A lot of people rent. 
But when you own your own property, you always have as a fallback. You can always sell your property. You're not beholden to a landlord that might not be the best landlord and doesn't keep the upkeep and makes your shop look shabby. So, you know, it's like renting an apartment versus owning a house. You have something back and when you're ready to sell or retire, you have much more value than just the business. So I think that's a matter of long-term strategy and profitability. And I would constantly be looking at my overheads if I'm providing any kind of health benefits or any benefits at all that need to be evaluated every single year because the better benefits I can do for less money for my employees, the better I am as an employer. And from a vendor perspective, I've always been a big believer in maximizing your buy-in benefits. Buy to the best level. Don't buy over your head, but buy to the best level that you can afford to get the maximum discount. And if any discount is available, make sure you pay it on time and take it because to your point, it all adds up. And if there's any ever any early incentive to pay early, especially if somebody's going to offer you half a point or a point, you can't get that in the bank today. So turn and money is very important to, to vendors. And so if they do happen to offer something, take advantage of it. It could be a buying level, but don't overbuy. Don't put yourself into a position to not be able to pay for your goods. I mean, working this side of the counter and you have four lines of bikes in your store and you have four lines of credit, you know, one guy gets paid, one guy doesn't. Somebody gets upset because I didn't sell through the stuff. Managing your business is very important because that's managing your relationship with your vendor and given the ability to give those discounts. It's always better to call up the vendor and say, I need another two weeks than not call them at all and maybe face some kind of penalty. Not that everybody's given one out, but there's times that that happens and to be cognizant of it. It's hard to talk your way out of a penalty from a credit card these days. Some people do pay for their goods through credit cards and, and maintain discounts. Those discounts they get on their credit cards have to offset the cost of using the card. You know, a lot of people are paying 3% for the use of a card in their own place or if they're running it through their own credit. But if you're using an outside credit, then it's not costing you 3%. If you're getting 2% or, or whatever that cash incentive is, it's also best to get the cash incentive back, money back in your hand, or that you can pay off that credit card with as it accumulates. That's pretty good too, because you, you can't get those incentives in a bank and Quite frankly, some vendors aren't offering it either because of the cost of money. I would take advantage of that. But again, not get yourself in trouble. Manage your business. Manage your resources well. That's fantastic. I was thinking about asking you around the you know, dealer program. So thank you for that insight there. Retailers you know, trying to navigate these programs right now. I'm thinking about the big year show coming up, Sea Otter, Cavda, definitely keeping an eye on the Delta variant and how things are going. Are you headed to any, if you're not, or if you are, just touching on the value that you could that you see in shows and if retailers are considering why you might think they should attend or should not? Yeah, I mean, my plan at this point, um, and I know things have flared up a little bit in certain parts of the area for people who, who aren't vaccinated, but I'm planning on going out to Cabdick because it's kind of the closest show. I am dying to go to a show just to see people again. And, you know... I go to the show to learn. It's not a mass market show. I'm in the mass market. But I like to look at where the, a lot of things evolve. 
from. I mean, the investment in the evolution of the bicycles happens in the IBD side of the market. So I like to look at what the trends are, what the colors are, the graphics. And, you know, sometimes I even meet my own retailers there because they want to walk the show. And I'll say, look at that bike over there. That is a cool color. These people seem to be doing it right. Look at the trend here. There's all of a sudden there's more comfort bikes and less mountain bikes or there's more cruisers. Look at the explosion of BMX. And I'm getting educated. And I also sit in a lot of the seminars because I just want to hear what's going on. I think sitting in seminars that MPD has are just fascinating because when we get educated here as an MPD member, they don't just tell us about the bike industry. We learn about other industries that we're even competing with. How's the overall economy? How's the overall retail market? How's the sporting goods and the food market? This and that. And that education just to where things are happening is, is fascinating. And I, that's why I think retailers go. Sea Otter to me is more, it's a learning show, but it's also a consumer-driven show. It's, it's to where to get those write-ups that I went on that bike and that was a cool bike. And I want to get one as soon as it's available. When's it available? Oh, 2023? Well, maybe I'll wait. But, you know, that's the benefit of shows. The shows in the last few years before the ending of Interbike were kind of off kilter with, you know, everybody was bought in by the time they went to a show. When I went to the bike, when I was working in the bike shop and there was one international bike show in New York, that was where the product launched. That If you saw it, some of you wrote business at the show. Or the rep would follow up, hey, well, I showed you the show. You know, let's, let's get an order together. And it was just off kilter. But it was a good time of year where, where dealers weren't really busy and had to afford the time. But now I think, you know, unless people can get educated, they're thirsty for education. Maybe that's why they go to the show today. And I applaud the growth, the captive from just being a, a regional Chicago show over the years to now having the three shows. And I wish that I was in the part of the business where I could attend all three and interact with as I loved going to shows. I loved seeing dealers. Now when I visit dealers, I'm sometimes dealing with the kids. You know, that the parents have moved on. Um, not that old, but a lot of them are, you know, in their mid forties or fifties when I was calling them in my twenties. And uh, they're retired now. And now their kids have taken over the business. Like the Kegels, you know, Wheel and Sprocket, perfect example. A blessed man with a blessed family. Get all choked up, but you know you miss people like that. They help you in your career to become who you are, and it's special. You don't get that in a lot of industries. You don't stay in an industry for forty years unless you love it and the people you're working with and the people around you. And you want to pull people in and have them have that same desire. It's a great industry. I think about the gifts that I've been given, simple gifts in this industry. I've been to all 48 states and almost every major city on somebody else's dime. I've been to China, Hong Kong, Japan, Canada, Mexico, Australia, London, or England, uh, Germany, all on somebody else's dime. I've seen the world. And you know, I am so grateful for learning different cultures and different uses for bicycles and different foods and just the interaction of the people. And it is such a great industry, it just in so many ways. And I wake up every day and I don't go, oh, crap, I got to go to work. Oh, crap, I got to go fly to Texas today. I embrace it every day because every day is different. I'm not stuck in one place every day. I'm seeing somebody and that's what keeps my energy going. The same thing in a bike shop. You have a different customer coming through every day. 
It's a new challenge. It's new energy. You have new products every year. And they're good for people. We're not selling bad. We're selling good. We're selling happy and fun. And it's just an extraordinary career, or extraordinary industry to have a career. And I, I feel blessed every day. <laughs> You're giving me goosebumps. I talked to Amelia this morning. I it was such a great family, and you know, I love that you got here from the question, are you going to the shows? Because I, the shows are where that magic, where you see people together and where you're, you just, you come together, you support each other. And I mean, I can't wait to see people. And I agree. I'm right with you. I wake up every morning, so thankful and so energized and I work hard, but I love everything that I do and you love it. It doesn't feel like hard work, right? It's, it is, but it's like, it's just such a passion. You know, we've covered so much and I'm just looking back. I have some notes here in front of me, you know, talking big picture, I guess. We have this bike boom going on. We have new people. We have infrastructure. What is exciting you most? If you could sum it up, you know, you, we wanted to title this podcast like Opportunities Now. So what is exciting you most about the industry right now? Number one is awareness. People are more aware of this industry now than in the last 20 years. Or, or even more. I mean, the last time, you know, in the 70s when there was a bike boom, people engaged and they bought bikes and there was a frenzy. I think it's going to hang on now longer because it's become a cultural change in the way people are approaching commuting or exercise or engagement with their family. That's what excites me most is we've done all this without advertising. Our product, our brand, or not a brand, our bicycles have engaged the consumer. They found this item that rivaled toilet paper for a while. And it's actually, there's plenty of toilet paper on the shelves, but not enough bicycles. So I think we're going to endure, and for a reason, because it's fun. And people have found fun. They fell in love with bicycles again. They fell in love with their youth. They fell in love with the fact that they can ride with their kids. And they can create new adventures and new memories. And Bill Smith, who was our former CEO who passed away a few years, was a big advocate of this. Is we sell fun. We sell memories. We make memories. It's not just bicycles. And that's what I think is most exciting about right now. And we have the resources. We have bikes for, for everybody, and, you know, kids to adult and different styles of bikes that we can accommodate every use that a person might have for a bicycle, it could be something as simple as my first bike to, you know, a cargo bike and an electric cargo bike, and just the fascination of the technology that we are living in today that has expanded beyond the two wheels and you know lead acid batteries for bicycles and you know now using lithium batteries, which was another very small part of my career. But when Lee Iacocca started EV Global. It was between my time with Raleigh and starting at Huffy. I had about a month gap there or so, and I consulted because they weren't sure on how to approach the market because do they go through bike shops or they go through car dealerships? And there was two camps of it. And I got to meet Lee Iacocca over the phone, conference call. And after we were done consulting and, you know, paid and all, I got paid. He asked me, Bob, is there anything else we could do for you? And I said, Mr. Iacocca, I only ask that you would sign the check because I want that as a memento on my wall. And he goes, well, Bob, I, I have to tell you something. I, I don't sign the check, <laughs> which was kind of funny. But, 
you know, I was in a bike shop in um, Portland not too long ago. I, I, the name escapes me. But all they do is sell e-bikes. And they had one of those EV global bikes, you know, hanging from the ceiling. And it was just cool to see. And just looking at that bike and the evolution of where we are today, there's just so much exciting stuff. And embrace it. Embrace the customers. You know, they're there. They're there for our taking. And we just need to bring them in and keep them as custom bracing as customers. It's so exciting. You know, I see my daughter involved in a NICA program and we have kids at a very early age getting into the sport and they're going to stay with it where, you know, I'm looking at when I was cycling at her age, I was just maybe going out occasionally with my dad. It's like a whole different thing now. So really exciting. All right. I'm going to wrap this up. We've been speaking about bicycle retail excellence and we recently had our bicycle retail excellence, which will have the awards at Big Gear Show. If I had to ask you what traits, in your opinion, that an excellent bicycle retailer possesses? I have that down here. I'm just looking for my notes for a It's up for that. So traits that an excellent bicycle retailer might yeah, possess. Got it right here. First of all, clean and inviting store. You know, to me, it's curb appeal, just like your house. You want somebody to feel welcome to come in so... They see your signage, make sure you have a nice sign, make sure if you have windows that they're clean, that your store looks good. Always a good selection of bikes and accessories. And not just what you want to sell, what's the trend in the industry, what the customer's coming in looking for, because I've been in situations where retailers will have a customer come in and customer doesn't see what they like, and retailer says, well, you really need this. And there's like anger. There shouldn't be friction. So have the right mix of goods. And the right mix of accessories. Accessories to me are big because they're conveniences to anything on your bike. The big ability to listen, listen and satisfy. Listen to what the customer is asking for because that gets you to the register faster. If you're satisfying and listening to their needs, hey, I'm looking to just do some some path riding. Well, would you like to look at this mountain bike? No, I, I like to look at a comfort bike. I like to look at a hybrid. Listen to what they're looking for you know, uh, is very, very important. And then that follow-up of retention. And retention is very important. That impression that the customer gets and their impression of you, keeping them happy and retaining them. Word of mouth now is not just word of mouth. Word of mouth is I'm going online. I don't like this guy. So I'm going to say online, I don't like them. And also say that they like you. Word of mouth is so important because, hey, where'd you get your bike? Oh, I got it over ABC Bicycle Stop. Oh, really? I'm going to try it over there because I like your bike. Or I had a problem. You know, the bike shop in the area, I mean, I don't know how many times I see even on our community Facebook site, people ask, anybody know where I can get a bike fixed? Yeah, over at Bob's house. (laughs) You know, it's that kind of thing. So follow up and retention. Sending out those mailers, keeping engaged with the customer, I think are the the four pillars of, of a good bike shop, you know, a community and for the consumer. Thank you so much, Bob. Your insights, I mean, the opportunities have given me hope, given me goosebumps throughout this conversation. You know, I appreciate you for giving up your time, for coming on the show, for sharing your insights. Hopefully I'll see you at CABDA, you know, fingers crossed. Yep, yep. Maybe we'll get a grab a Coke. For sure. So that is it. I invite you to connect and come on Bicycle Retail Radio and share your story with our listeners. Uh, There's lots of love for our industry, lots of great webinars coming up and member networking meetings you can find on the MBDA website. If you'd like to support the show, don't forget to subscribe, share your favorite episode with friends and on social media. Thank you for listening and come back soon. And with this, we go.
This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Thank you.